going to read from Philippians chapter 4 as we get started with this morning's bi- brief biography. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and God of peace will be with you. Let's bow our heads and pray as we start this morning. Lord God, our thoughts of this week have been, have been many things, many of, many of which are in direct antithesis to what we've been told to think, meditate, and dwell upon. Lord God, our thoughts have been anxious and angry and frustrated and worried. Lord, they've been lustful, they've been covetous, they've been, uh, Lord, they've been self-absorbed. Lord God, we have been, Lord, we've had a cacophony ringing through our head from, it, from the world around us. So we ask now that you would come and quiet our hearts. Let us hear the still, small voice uh, at, with which you spoke to Moses. Speak to our hearts directly today. Lord God, bless us as we study, as we study the men and women of the past. Let us see both our struggles and your redemption in them as we find it uh, in ourselves. Lord God, come and teach us this morning. Prepare us to worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start things a little differently this morning. In vain I have struggled. It will not do. My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how much I ardently love and admire you. In such cases as this, it is, I believe, the established mode to express a sense of obligation for the sentiments avowed. However, unequally, they may be returned. It is natural that obligations should be felt, and that if I could feel gratitude, I would now thank you. But I cannot. I have never desired your good opinion, and you have certainly bestowed it most unwillingly. I am sorry to have occasioned pain to anyone. It has been most unconsciously done, however, and I will hope it will be of short duration. The feelings which you tell me have long prevented the acknowledgement of your regard, can have little difficulty in overcoming it after this explanation. And this is all the reply which I am to have the honor of expecting. I might perhaps wish to be informed why, with so little endeavor at civility, I am thus rejected, but it is of small importance. I might as well inquire why, with so evident a desire of offending and insulting me, you choose to tell me that you like me against your will, against your reason, and even against your character. Was not this some excuse for incivility if I was uncivil? But I have other provocations. You know I have. Had not my feelings decided against you? Had they been indifferent? Or had they even been favorable? Do you think that any consideration would tempt me to accept the man who has been the means of ruining, perhaps forever, the happiness of a most beloved sister? I have every reason in the world to think ill of you. No motive can excuse the unjust and ungenerous part you have acted there. You dare not, you cannot deny it, that you have been the principal, if not the only means of dividing them from each other, of exposing one to the censure of the world for caprice and instability, and the other to its derision for disappointed hopes, and involving them both in the misery of the acutest kind. Can you deny that you have done it? I have no wish of denying that I did everything in my power to separate my friend from your sister, or that I rejoice in my success. Towards him I have been kinder than towards myself. But it is not merely this affair of which my dislike is founded. Long before it had taken place, my opinion of you was decided. Your character was unfolded in the recital which I received many months ago from Mr. Wickham. On this subject, what can you have to say? In what imaginary act of friendship can you have defended yourself? 
and under what misrepresentation can you here impose upon you others? You take an eager interest in that gentleman's concerns. Who but knows if his misfortunes can help taking an interest in him? His misfortunes, yes. His misfortunes have been great indeed. <laughs> and of your infliction, you have reduced him to his present state of poverty. You have withheld the advantage which you must know to have been designed for him. You have deprived, deprived the best years of his life of what independence which was no less his due than his desert. You have done all this, and yet you can treat the mention of his misfortune with contempt and ridicule. And this is your opinion of me. This is the estimation in which you hold me. I thank you for explaining it so fully. My faults, according to this calculation, are heavy indeed. But perhaps these offenses might have been overlooked had not your pride been hurt by my honest confession of the scruples that had long prevented my forming any serious design. These bitter accusations might have been repressed had I, with greater policy, concealed my struggles and flattered you into the belief of my being impelled by unqualified, unalloyed inclination, by reason, by reflection, by everything. But disguise of every sort is my abhorrence, nor am I ashamed of the feelings I related. They were natural and just. Could you expect me to rejoice in the inferiority of your connections, to congratulate myself on the hope of relations whose condition in life is so decidedly beneath my own? You are mistaken, Mr. Darcy, if you suppose that the mode of your declaration affected me in any other way than as it spared me the concern which I might have felt in refusing you had you behaved in a more gentlemanlike manner. You could not have made the offer of your hand in any possible way that would have tempted me to accept it. From the very beginning, from the first moment, I may almost say of my acquaintance with you, your manners impressing me with the fullest belief of your arrogance, your conceit, and your selfish disdain for the feelings of others were such as to form the groundwork of disapprobation on which succeeding evidence have built so immovable a dislike. And I have not known you a month before I felt that you were the last man in the world whom I could ever be prevailed upon to marry. You have said quite enough, madam. I perfectly comprehend your feelings and have now only to be ashamed of what my own have been. Forgive me for having taken up so much of your time and accept my best wishes for your health and happiness. Thank you, babe. Now, in case you're wondering, we did not decide to come and fight in front of you all. Did anyone recognize what we were reading from? Yeah, Kendall. Yes, indeed. So for those of you whose high school literature might be a bit rusty, that was the, the world's worst and most famous proposal of marriage, taken from one of the early chapters of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. The the, with, the withdrawn and aloof Mr. Darcy has come to pay his, pay his addresses to Miss Elizabeth Bennet, and she has declined him most severely. We're going to be talking about Miss Austin, Miss Austin this morning, and when we talk about Jane Austen, we're really going to end up talking about her characters and her work um, for the majority of this time. The reason for that is because her life is not very well known. There's a lot of reasons for this. We know she was born on December 16th, 1775, in Hampshire, England. It's way too early. I have way too much congestion for British, British city names. Hampshire, England. And she is known for her six major novels. First, first published was Sense and Sensibility, then Pride and Prejudice, the one she's most known for today, Emma, Persuasion, and Northanger Abbey. Now, as I said, we know very, very little about her life, and this is, this is a great deal because of her family destroyed, <laughs> destroyed most of what, was actually, what she wrote outside of her books, and, uh, and then proceeded to kind of to work to misrepresent her life afterwards. So her details are very, very sketchy. 
what we do know is that her family was very, her family was very important to her life, her entire life growing up. She was the daughter of George and Cassandra Austin. Uh, George Austin was a rector in the Anglican Church of the day and was, was in Hampshire where she was born. And so she lived, she lived surrounded not only by her family and her, I forgot to count, one, two, three, four, and her five brothers and sisters, uh, but she was also surrounded by her father's work, by the parish there, and most importantly by his library, which was, which was like most Anglican pastors of the day, extensive. She and her brothers and sister and her older sister read extensively. They learned at home before going off to boarding school, came back home to study for another time, and went off. Their, their education was extensive and varied. Um, but much of, it was, much of her early upbringing was centered in her family and their discussion, particularly in the evenings. Uh, after meals were over, they would, she, and, um, she, and her other, she and her family would stage dramatic productions in their home the amusement, amusement of each other. Uh, Jane began writing and decided to become a writer around the age of 18. She, felt, she filled up uh, reams and reams of paper and notebooks with a collection of work that today has come to be known as the Juvenalia, and it's basically all of her young writings. And uh, I wish we had time to dive into some of these. I've ju I just discovered this preparing for this today, and there's some wild stuff in there. She had a fruitful imagination as a young girl, and her delight then, as it would be later in life, was to take popular literature of the day and lampoon it. She loved to write parodies. She, she had a sarcastic and ironic sense of humor. And uh, it was unsophisticated and blunt at the time. But she would basically take whatever was popular and she would start poking holes in it. Uh, and she would go on to do this in her other books as well. I think one of the best, I'll give you just a brief example of this. And this was, this was written later in life, but very much at the uh, very much in the same vein as some of her early writing. She, uh, as, as many writers and artists and musicians, uh, she got a lot of advice from people about what she should put in her books. And so she decided one day she would write an outline of the ideal novel. And so I'm just going to read, so this is, if this, this is just kind of basically a list of bullet points in her copy of Microsoft Word as she was writing down the thoughts of what this ideal novel would be like, according to all the fine advice she'd gotten. Speaking of the heroine, she says she is often carried away by the anti-hero, but rescued either by her father or by the hero, often reduced to support herself and her father by her talents and work for her bread, continually cheated and defrauded of her hire, worn down to a skeleton, and now and then starved to death. At last, hunted out of civilized society, denied the poor shelter of the humblest cottage, they are compelled to repeat, retreat into Kamshakta, with a poor father, quite worn down, finding his end approaching, throws himself on the ground, and after four or five hours of tender advice and parental admonition to his miserable child, expires in a fine burst of literary enthusiasm. Intermingled with invectives against holders of ties. Heroine inconsolable for some time, but afterward crawls back towards her former country, having at least 20 narrow escapes from falling into the hands of the anti-hero. And at last, in the very nick of time, turning a corner to avoid him, runs into the arms of the hero himself who, having just shaken off the scruples which fettered him before, was at the very moment setting off in pursuit of her. The tenderest and completest at Clarissement takes place, and they are happily united. In 1780, so she was, she was writing this. She was sending her, she was both uh, doubling over her family in laughter, and she was also receiving the harshest criticism that anyone can get from her own brothers and sisters. And this was the crucible in which her abilities as a writer were being developed at a young age. 
1783, she was sent to school in Oxford, but she nearly died of typhus. Uh, she, like, as I said before, she was homeschooled for a bit after that, and then went to boarding school. And through it all, she was devouring books from her father's library as fast as they could be added. At the age of 18, she began working on, she began working on a novel she called Eleanor and Marianne at the time. It would come to be known as Sense and Sensibility, her first and probably her second most famous novel. Um, uh, she, she worked on it for a time and then worked on a novel called First Impressions, which would be the working title for Pride and Prejudice. Uh, around this time, her father started looking into having the work published, seeing some ability there. Uh, no, it was this first attempt at publishing one of her work was 1797 to no avail. In 1800, her father retired from the ministry and moved the family to Bath, um, which, was, uh, which was famous famous then, as it is still now, as a spa, basically a spa town. Uh, it was literally called Bath because the Romans in ancient Britain built baths there, built hot baths there, and, and so the British continued that tradition and went there. It was basically a, basically a very popular vacation spot. So they didn't have Disney World. It was the next best thing. We don't know. There's a lot of speculation over, over Austen's frame of mind at this. There seems to be a lot of her literary production seems to have fallen off at this time. We don't know why. We don't know if she just hated the crowds, if she was distraught from being pulled out of the ho only home she'd ever known in Hampshire, or if, uh, or if she was just too busy going to parties and dancing and enjoying the social scene there. Could be, we, do know, we do know that Bath figured prominently in later novels, particularly Persuasion. So she drew, uh, we know, you can, as you study what little we know of her life, you can see where a lot of her ideas were coming from, developing. We do know that, it does seem that she was, while she didn't start any new works at this time, she was going back and, and editing, closely editing what she had already written. It was around this time she received her only proposal of marriage from a man named Harris Big Wither. He lived up to the name, unfortunately. He was supposed to be something of a jerk. She, uh, she accepted him one day and turned him down the next. Um, apparently it was viewed as a financially prudent marriage, but there was nothing more, uh, there's nothing more to recommend it. And she remained, uh, she remained at home with her sister and her parents for the rest of her life. Um, later, uh, she continued to work on her novels. She began working with her, um, she and her brothers began working with publishers to see about getting her novels published. The, the, uh, there were various means of getting novels published at the time. Uh, one of them was to pay, one of them was to publish on commission. And this is, where, uh, this is where an author would give a manuscript to a publisher who would print it at his own expense, and then the initial intake of revenue for the book would be, first be sent to the printer to pay for his costs, and then anything above that would be received by the author. This was, uh, this was risky because if the book did poorly, it meant the author might not only, not only would the author not get any money for it, she would still have to pay the, pay the publisher. So, this, so what most new authors like Austin would do is they would actually pay to have their novel published. Uh, they would receive, um, no, excuse me, flip that around. So that's the way most would start. Um, but a more certain thing would be to simply try to sell a manuscript to a publisher. You would get a one-time one amount, and they would publish it, and then anything that the book brought in, the publisher would keep. So a lot less risk for the author, but a lot less potential for remuneration if your book does well. So some of her early books were published like that. She found publishers like, yeah, this is okay. We'll sell it. They paid her a little bit, and, um, and, she got, and that's how she started. As she started growing popularity, she started to print on commission. 
the publishers would, a publisher would run them off. It's very interesting. If the publisher paid for the manuscript and they were taking all the risk, they'd print it as quickly as possible on the cheapest paper possible. And so that's how, that's how Pride and Prejudice would have first come out of the world. It would have been literally a paperback, you know, the closest thing to a paperback novel that they could turn out at the time. Whereas with Sense and Sensibility, when it was published, that was on commission. Um, the printer spared no expense. They wanted to try to get back. They were going to spend. They knew they were going to get the first, you know, the first money that came in. So they wanted it as expensive as possible to go out. She had four novels published in her lifetime: um, Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, Emma, and Mansfield Park. And then um, she, then after five years in Bath, her father passed away. And she and her fan, she and her sister and her mother uh, were in very tenuous financial situation at that time. They they lived with various relations, were cared for by their brothers until the brothers started to have financial trouble. It was about at that time that a lot of the income from Austin's own writing came in. She was able to support her family with that up to the end. At this time, her novels were being read. They were being read very widely. Um, critics couldn't decide what to make of her. Uh, her ironic sense of humor and her, you know, her iconoclastic approach to the genre, accepted genres of the day meant that um, her books were very much in vogue amongst readers, but were very contentious and divisive among critics. So she didn't get a ton of exposure from that. Her last two novels, so she got, she made modest success. Her name was never actually printed in any of her works. Uh, when Sense and Sensibility was first published, it was simply credited to a lady. And then all future, all future works were credited to the author of Sense and Sensibility. Her last two novels, Persuasion and Northanger Abbey, were completed in her lifetime, but not, but published posthumously by her, by her brother. And then another one published by her nephew later on. Um, it wasn't until it wasn't until the early 1800s that publishers began to that collected her works together and published them again and found a renewed interest. And they have never been out of print since then. They've been translated into multiple languages. They have been uh, they've been a staple of British literature and been afflicted on high school students uh, ever since. So much for her life. Let's talk about her work. So I mentioned before, Austen's style was very incisive. She, had, um, she is known for her wit and for her characterizations and for her dialogue. If you read Austen compared with other authors at the time, uh, my, my, famous con my favorite contrast is Sir Walter Scott. Has anyone here read Scott? Sir Walter Scott, Ivanhoe, probably is the most famous one. If you read Ivanhoe, if you read Ivanhoe or other, one of uh, Scott's other great historical novels, they're wonderful reads. And they're filled with passages of what we may call purple prose, where he has his character standing on a proverbial hilltop, looking over the sunset, and you know, the, and all the trees turning, you know, turning pink, and these vivid, vivid descriptions of worlds and appearances of people, and uh, and detailed definitions of battle and single combat. You will find none of that in Austin, not only because it's not her subject, obviously, uh, but also because she did. She spent very little time on descriptions of scenery on people's appearances, on any descriptions of settings. Almost everything she wrote was spoken, uh, whether you know, dialogue between two people or written correspondence. She has a lot of letters. Um, she wrote a ton of letters herself. She has a ton of letters in her novels. She also, um, she also pioneered a new technique in writing that was unknown at the time called free indirect speech. And this is where, instead of seeing, a quote, instead of seeing dialogue in quotation marks between two people, it's just written right into the narration. She has the narrator's third-person omniscient voice speaking 
interchangeably with an inner dialogue for the character, usually for her, uh, for her lead character. And these two things mix, uh, mix freely in her writing. Um, Scott himself would actually praise Austen and uh, praise her anonymously as a, giving her a favorable review, saying, the art of copying from nature as she really exists in the common walks of life and presenting to the reader, instead of the splendid scenes from imaginary world, a correct and striking representation of that which is daily taking place around him. She's viewed as an early realist writer in that she designed not to, not to capture epic, you know, epic legends or, or fairy tales or, um, you know, or other places and other worlds, but she, got, she attempted to capture the people around, the people, the places, and the lives being lived out around her as she'd seen them. And she intended to do this through um, through the dialogue, you know, through the dialogue and through the conversation that they had, which is why I kicked off, which was why I asked Caitlin to help me give him just a brief sample of it, uh, just to give you a sense of the repartee and the, you know, and the, the energy she would put into this writing. Let's talk about her writing just a little bit. There's a lot in here. There's a lot in here to consider. Typically when people think of Austin, they think of what? What? Texas. Thanks, Greg. You're a big help. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> they think of romance novels, don't they? She supposedly, you know, she created it as far as most people are concerned. What's interesting when you read her is there's not a whole lot of romantic material in here as we think of it today. There's not a lot, there's not a lot of walks in the moonlight or holding hands. There, there's not even, you know, you rarely even get descriptions of hero and heroine kissing each other in these things. Um, it's, it's a lot of conversation. It's a lot of talking in these books. I mentioned, and it's, it's, I mentioned before that she's considered an early realist, but like all opinions in Austen, that's not universally accepted because there's a lot of elements of fairy tale in her writing as well. There's a lot, you know, there, everything ends with a wedding. It is very much a, you know, there is very much a live happily ever after. Um, you know, we even heard that famous line in the recitation earlier about, you are the last man on earth I'll ever marry. I mean, a lot of these cliches we think of today she created. There is this sense of, there is this sense of other, as, as much as she tried to capture the world around her accurately, there is this sense of otherworldliness in a lot of these things, uh, which is, which would be an interesting subject in and of itself. How do we, uh, a lot of Christian authors have grappled with, have grappled with uh, the place of both fiction and, and legend and myth in our writing. I just restarted listening to The Pilgrim's Progress recently, which I haven't read in a long time. And if you've read that, you know that Bunyan actually kicks it off with a whole apology for, his, for the format of the book. He didn't sit down to write a theological treatise, you know, as, many, as, many, as he and many other Puritans had done. He sat down to write an allegory. And he anticipated a lot of people were going to wonder, why would you do that? And so he starts with a whole apology for this. And what I think, what I think Bunyan gets at, and Austin realizes as well, is there's great, there's great power when you take a concept that you want to wrestle with and you pull it out of its familiar surroundings and you put it into a story, a story with some fantastic elements and then let people experience it anew, if you will. And there's an element of that. There's very, if you, you'll see similarities to Cinderella and to other classic fairy tales that Austin would have absorbed as a young girl in her writing. And in the midst of, it's also interesting that um, like in the title of her famous novel, Sense and Sensibility, she does, there's a lot of emotion, there's a lot of feeling, she deals with matters of the heart, to put, you know, for lack of a better term, in her novels. But a lot of her interaction between her heroes and heroines in particular is not so much about what they feel, but what they believe, 
what they think. A lot of what she views as the appropriate relationship is a likeness of character and, mind, and a unity of mind as well. And usually it's, you know, usually a lot of the drama comes around trying to try get two people to realize how much, not what they have in different, not what their differences are, but what they have in common. I also see a lot, I think if you ever read her, again, I would look for elements of the morality play uh, in there as well. Um, the morality play came out during the Middle Ages when the, the Bible was still in Latin, when most people couldn't read it, when the Catholic Church knew knew that the common people needed to have, outside the priesthood, need to have some sense of the truths of the Bible, they would go around and stage plays. Uh, stage plays with morality tales, where basically good and evil face off for the soul of some man or woman. And this is played out on the stage. It was a, crude, it was a very crude technique. It was something that Tetzel would have been traveling around with, um, traveling around with selling indulgences through Germany at the beginning of the Reformation. But there's an interesting sense you're trying to wrestle with you're trying to wrestle with how, how should we then live in this world. And Austin, you know, Austin's, uh, Austin has a play of morality and principles and people's differing priorities bouncing off each other in her books all the time. That's enough for me, though. Let's, let's dive in and talk about this a little bit. Um, there's a, there is a lot about... Uh, we'll start with the heart first, because there is a lot about how to protect your own heart and how to protect others and the dangers of what happened when that's not done in her writing. Uh, Mr. Darcy, later in Pride and Prejudice, conversation with his sisters, he would comment that a lady's imagination is very rapid. It jumps from admiration to love, from love to matrimony in a moment. And there's a great deal, of, a, lot, a great deal of pressure is brought upon her heroines because as soon as, as soon as a woman has danced with a man at the local country dance more than once, then everyone starts thinking, oh, there's a connection there. They're going to get married. They're going to have 12 children. You know, it's all going to happen within six, months, six weeks. Um, this, this, uh, there's a lot about gossip. There's a lot about speculation. There's a lot about the pressures that are brought upon people as relationships are formed or presumed to form. There's also, there's also a lot of instruction for young men and how they, and how they, treat, how they look out for others around them. Um, for those of you, so the central, one of the central conflicts that Sense and Sensibility is between... Um, sense and Sensibility revolves around two sisters, Eleanor, uh, the older sister, and Marianne, her younger sister. They are the titular Sense and Sensibility. Putting it, you know, to summarize it simply, they're the titular... They represent Sense and Sensibility in the novel. Eleanor, the sensor, sensible, practical, um, you know, pragmatic older sister, and then Marianne, the romantic, emotional, flighty younger sister, the sensibility in this. And so at the, at the heart of this is a relationship that Marianne develops with this man named Willoughby, who, actually, he says it best in his own words. Let me just read what he says. Towards the end of the book, Marianne has fallen sick with a fever, and she's on the point of dying at one point. Willoughby, at this point, has thrown her off and married another woman, married for money, as many, yeah, as a common, common theme through many of her novels. And he, uh, he, he basically comes to check on Marianne, because he loves her still, and to justify his behavior to her older sister. Uh, this whole section is too long for me to read in entirety, but it's it's pretty it's pretty potent passage of uh, literature. So Eleanor, at first, ha wants absolutely nothing to do with him. He's broken her sister's heart, and he's been a total cad, and she wants to hear nothing of it. But he, here's the defense he gives: I insist on your hearing the whole of it. He replied, "My fortune was never large. 
and I had always been expensive, meaning he liked to spend money, always in the habit of associating with people of better income than myself. Every year since my coming of age, or even before, I believe had added to my debts, and though, my, and though the death of my old cousin, Mrs. Smith, was to set me free, yet that even being uncertain and possibly far distant, it had been for some time my intention to reestablish my circumstances by marrying a woman of fortune. To attach myself to your sister, therefore, was not a thing to be thought of, and with a meanness, selfish cruelty, which no indignant, no contemptuous look, even of yours, Miss Dashwood, can ever reprobate too much, I was acting in this manner, trying to engage her regard without a thought of returning it. But one thing may be said for me, even in that horrid state of selfish vanity, I did not know the extent of the, iniquity, of the injury I meditated, because I did not then know what it, is, it was to love. But have I ever known it? Well may it be doubted, for had I really loved, could I have sacrificed my feelings to vanity, to avarice, or what is more, could I have sacrificed hers? But I have done it. To avoid a comparative poverty, which her, afflict, which her affection and her society would have deprived of all its horrors, I have, by raising myself to affluence, lost everything that could make it a blessing. You did then, said Eleanor, a little softened. I believe yourself at one time attached to her. Willoughby goes on, to have resisted such attractions, to have withstood such tenderness, is there a man on earth who could have done it? Yes, I found myself, by insensible degrees, sincerely fond of her, and the happiest hours of my life were what I spent with her. When I felt my intentions were strictly honorable, my feelings blameless. Even then, however, when fully determined on paying my address to her, I allowed myself most improperly to put off from day to day the moment of doing it, from unwillingness to enter into an engagement while my circumstances were so greatly embarrassed. Uh, he, goes, he goes on there for a while. He's basically confessing that he, had, he was a selfish, self-absorbed man. cared nothing about his own pleasures, his own occupation, and he found a pretty girl in the country to try to while away the hours with. That's how it began. And then he actually began to fall, fall in love with her. And so he, but his selfishness did not end with that. He was attracted... But he kept putting, but man, what did he do? He kept putting off the responsibility, putting it off, putting it off. He just kept flirting with her. He just kept spending time with her. He just kept making her enjoy his company. But he didn't commit. He didn't ask her to marry him. He didn't create any formal engagement. He kept putting off all those things that would have, that would have actually led toward a marriage, led toward fulfillment of all the emotions, all the feelings that they'd been going together. And this is a, this is a good thing to remember. I mean, we live in a day when, when relationships, even sexual relationships, are viewed as diversions and occupations and, and just pleasures to be enjoyed and done away with. Um, there's, you know, we don't think about what we do, men don't think about what they do to their own hearts or the hearts of women around them when they, when they engage in dalliances and recreational dating and things like that. And we don't see the damage we do when we, you know, when we form relationships without, without looking to turn them into the covenant of relationships that the Lord commands and wants us to do. Change the subject completely. You remember that Austin was, uh, you remember that Austin was, uh, she, was this, she was the daughter of a pastor, and uh, many people point out that she had, that pastors don't always fare well in her no novels. They can be, uh, a lot of people remember Mr. Collins from Pride and Prejudice, this insipid, insinuating, uh, pa you know, pastor who's simply concerned about the approval of his benefactress. 
Um, but she actually had a very, but she had a very high view of the office. And when she turned to criticism, it was of the pitiful men who inhabit it, not of the office itself. She has a great, she has an interesting section from Mansfield Park, which if you've never read Mansfield Park, this is probably one of the most difficult of her works to get through. Um, her her uh, hero and heroine are total wet blankets in this, in my personal opinion. Uh, but there's some really, but you can always count on some colorful characters around them if you don't like the hero and heroine in her books. She has an interesting section. If, uh, all right, going back to my previous section. Sorry, my thoughts are having thoughts. In, the, uh, in Sense of Sensibility, we talk about a wayward man, the selfish man in Willoughby. In Mansfield Park, one of the most interesting characters is Mary Crawford, and she is a forward uh, forward loose woman. The, she comes between the hero and the heroine in this, and she, one of the things that she does is she despises the calling that Edmund Bertram, the hero, is desiring. He wants to go into the ministry. And she's shocked at this. She's like, you're, I mean, you're only the second oldest son. There's plenty of opportunities or rich uncles to die and leave you a fortune. Why, you know, why waste yourself on the pastorate? Why waste, waste yourself on the cloth? And he answers to this. If I can find it here. She says to him, you, speak, so Mary speaking to Edmund says, you assign greater consequence to the clergyman than one has been used to hear given, or, that, or than I can quite comprehend. One does not see much of this influence and importance in society. And how can it be acquired when they are so seldom seen themselves? How could two sermons a week, even supposing them worth hearing, supposing the preacher to have the sense to prefer Blair's to his own, do all, many pastors at the time, particularly Anglican pastors, would read other people's sermons instead of writing their own. And she's, she's snidely making, uh, making reference to that. Supposing the preacher had the sense to prefer Blair's to his own, do all that you speak, govern the conduct and fashion, and fashion the manners of a large congregation for the rest of the week, one scarcely sees a clergyman out of his pulpit. Edmund replies, you are speaking of London. I am speaking to the nation at large. Mary retorts, the metropolis, I imagine, is a pretty fair sample of the rest. Not, I should hope, of the proportion of virtue to vice throughout the kingdom. We do not look in great cities for our best morality. It is not there that respectable people of any denomination can do most good. And it certainly is not there that the influence of the clergy can most be felt. A fine preacher is followed and admired, but it is not in fine preaching only that a good clergyman will be useful in his parish and his neighborhood, where the parish and neighborhood are of a size capable of knowing his private character and observing his general conduct, which in London can rarely be the case. The clergy are lost there in the crowds of their parishioners. They are known to the largest part only as preachers. And with regard to their influencing public manners, Miss Crawford must not misunderstand me, or suppose I mean to call them the arbiters of good breeding, the regulators of refinement and courtesy, the masters of the ceremonies of life. The manners I speak of, and this is important, novels, novel, Austin's novels are called novels of manners. And manners, manners don't, uh, we don't carry much weight in our day and age when courtesy has all but died. We think of them as superficial, you know, social niceties. But here he, he speaks of what I think Austin had in mind when she talked about manners. She said, I speak rather, the manners I speak of might rather be called conduct, perhaps, the result of good principles, the effect, in short, of those doctrines which it is their duty to teach and recommend. And it will, I believe, be everywhere found that as the clergy are or are not what they ought to be, so are the rest of the nation. I love that line, whatever the clergy are or are not, so will be the rest of the nation. And this is important. 
that's an important reminder for all of us today. And he realized, you know, he realized that in speaking to his uh, flighty girlfriend that, you know, there wouldn't, there probably, being a country pastor probably wasn't going to have a lot of, uh, a lot of social cred, a lot of street, not much street cred, not much prominence. He wasn't going to rise to fame or the influence of the world saw it. But he saw an opportunity in a small community to not only to preach on Sunday and then to live and to minister among the people the rest of the week. And I love that contrast that he has between preachers and pastors. As, you, you know, as, your, as your own pastor gets up to preach, remember that's only, that's only half of his work. The sermon on Sunday is now to be lived out and ministered and applied throughout the week. And that's, it's, it's critical that those who preach also pastor. Because every, you know, every word that Andrew's chosen this morning was written with all of us in mind. Um, that's uncomfortable on some Sunday mornings. But that's what makes it effective. That's what actually lodges it in our hearts. So I'd like, we don't know, we know even less about George Austin than we do his, his more famous daughter. Uh, I'd like to think that she's reflecting the ministry that she saw in his life here. But we don't know. Let me end with um, that there's a wonderful description of Mansfield Park of Lady Bertram, Edmund's, uh, Edmund's vapid mother. And it gives a good, it gives a good insight into, uh, into her view of pride, which pro- uh, pride and its dangers would prop up many of her novels. So describing Lady Bertram, she was a woman who spent her days in sitting, nicely dressed, on a sofa, doing some long piece of needlework of little use and no beauty, thinking more of her pug than her children, but very indulgent to the latter when it did not put herself to inconvenience. Uh, so this, these colorful descriptions of self-indulgence and self-absorption are all throughout this. And of course, we, we touched on pride. Um, if you've read Pride and Prejudice, you know that at the heart, uh, you know at the heart of it is the conflict between pride and prejudice. On the one hand, Darcy's pride in his own self-importance. On the other hand, Elizabeth's prejudice, thinking she knows this man from, upon, first, upon first impressions. And that all of that comes out, all of that comes out in that first, uh, that first heated exchange uh, when he proposes. But it ends in a very different place for both of them, as they both learn to give up prejudice and give up pride at the same, same time. And I love what Darcy says as he proposes more successfully the second time. He says, I have been a selfish being all my life. In practice, though not in principle. This is interesting. As a child, I was taught what was right. That should be all you need, right? But I was not taught to correct my temper. I was given good principles, but left to follow them in pride and conceit. Unfortunately, an only son, (laughs) for many years an only child, I was spoiled by my parents, who, though good themselves, my father particularly, all that was benevolent and amiable, allowed, encouraged, almost taught me to be selfish and overbearing, to care for none beyond my own family circle, to think meanly of all the rest of the world, to wish at least to think meanly of their sense and worth compared with my own. Such I was from eight to eight and twenty, and such I might still have been but for you, dearest, loveliest Elizabeth. Who do I, what do I not owe you? You taught me a lesson, hard indeed at first, but most advantageous. By you I was properly humbled. I came to you without a doubt of my reception. You showed me how insufficient were all my pretensions to please a woman worthy of being pleased. I love that contrast. He had right principles. He knew what was right. But he didn't live it out. It didn't come from here. I mean, this is good admonition to Presbyterians this morning. Because we have, you know, we have, we are people of the word. We, you know, we claim, we can spout gospel truths and good theology all day long. But do we live it? Do we govern our tempers in it? 
Or do we lash out at people we think we're better than? I mean, we, can de- we, can be, we can be unredeemed Darcy uh, quite often. Um, so stepping, stepping back from this a minute, I think my, uh, my initial humorous working title for this lesson was Why Women Should Avoid Reading Austin and Men Should Read Instead. Um, the reason for that, the reason for that is that um, going back to the passage I read this morning, we should be, we should be mindful of the thoughts with, with which we fill our hearts. The company we keep are, are the people around us, obviously, but they're also the people we read, the thoughts and ideas that we dwell on. And so when we think about the books on our, the books on our nightstand, the ones we're actually reading, not just, you know, pretending to read and impress the elders, uh, when we think about... Uh, when we think about the movies we watch, the music we listen to, think about the company we are keeping and ponder what we are thinking upon. When you read Austin, keep that in mind. Austin is not perfect. There's a, I haven't delved into, there's a lot of critique here. There's a lot of critique that could be given this morning, which I've not done. Read her, you know, read her with sense as well. But look for the areas where she, look for the areas where she teaches the Christian life and what she writes. So I recommend, so I, I like to recommend that young men read at least one of Austin's six novels. I can talk to you afterwards uh, about which one. There's the best and there's the shortest, and you can pick which one you like. Um, because, for many reasons, because her books are about men as much as they are about women. Uh, she contrasts the weak, the insipid, the cowardly man, man with the strong, with the decisive, with the faithful man. And you see that often in her writing. It's also, frankly, guys, a good way to understand how to talk to women. <laughs> and you should be talking to women. You should be talking to women that you can't take out on dates. If you're young and single, you should be talking to married women. You should be asking them, what are, you, what are they reading? What are they struggling with? What are they, how can they be prayed for right now? Because as, if Austin shows us anything, it's that um, the relationship to men and women are, are vastly complicated. And most of it is done in what we say, uh, what we say to each other. And this is a good way to start. Yeah, I see you, Zeke. I can tell you're filled with desire. <laughs> I'll loan you my copy when we're done. <laughs> and then I always caution young women, uh, uh, women, well, women of all ages, married and unmarried alike, be careful when you read Austen, as indeed you should be careful when you read anything romantic, that you don't take, the, you don't take a fantasy world, another world, and, desire, and, and grow discontent with your own. None of us here are married to Mr. Darcy. I mean, Caitlin's close, but she's the only one. None of us here are married to that guy, and, uh, and you shouldn't want to be. You should be wanting to be married to whoever God called you to be. And just like Darcy, he's got his rough edges, he's got his, he's got his difficulties, he's got, he's got his preconceived notions and his pride he has to work through just as you do. So Austin, I think Austin would be the first to say you should never take a character in a novel as the ideal and, and wish to live in them, as many people do with Austin's novels and many others. Unfortunately, many people, many women in particular, are enslaved to far worse, worse novels than what we're looking at now. You know, it's the, the stuff that chokes our, you know, the stuff with, you know, half-clothed man and woman on the cover that chokes out all of our library shelves, which, when it's, where it's just pure sensibility, I guess, is the best thing you could say about these things. It's really, it's a form of emotional pornography. Every bit as dangerous to women as, the, as, as visual pornography is to men. And so be careful what you read, and make sure what you're reading 
points you to what praises what is noble, what is godly, what is just, what is truly beautiful. Um, last thing I'll say. Last thing I'll say is um, I'll read. I know we're out of time here. I think I can do this. And uh, I've resisted reading much from Emma, which is my favorite of Austin novels. Um, and it, it's one of my favorites because uh, Emma, the titular heroine, is completely different from any from Elizabeth Bennet or Eleanor Dashwood or any of the competent intelligent, mature women that these novels are used center on. Emma is a total moron for most of the book. I mean, she has excellent qualities, but they don't come into play in the, in the plot at all. The whole plot is driven by her, by her mistakes and her errors and having to re unlearn things uh, throughout this whole thing. And one of the ways she does that is with, a, you know, is with the, uh, the hero of the book, Mr. Knightley. And he comes to her after she has, uh, after she has um, made, fun of, made fun of a poor woman in their community. And she's mocked her publicly in front of others. And Knightley comes to her and says, Emma, I must once more speak to you as I have been used to do, a privilege rather, than, rather endured than allowed, perhaps, but I must still use it. I cannot see you acting so wrong without a remonstrance. How could you be so unfeeling to Miss Bates? How could you be so insolent in your wit to a woman of her character, age, and situation? Emma, I had not thought it possible. He tells her it was, it was badly done, is the famous line from this. And, uh, you know, characters rebuking each other and it promoting good change is not, is not a plot device we see very often in this day and age. And, um, but Emma's, Emma's absolutely devastated by this. And in a way, and in her own self-assurance, she's ignored every bit of criticism she's received up to this point. And, um, and it's actually the moment, it's actually short after this, she realizes that she's actually loved this man all her life and wondered why she ever thought about any others. And uh, it's, so it's kind of the pivotal, pivotal moment, her character development in the book. And I love that. Because we should love those who, are willing, who love us enough to come up and say, Chuck, you've sinned, you've done wrong. That's not an easy thing to hear. It's not an easy thing to do um, on either side. And it's something to remember when, you know, when your brother, when your sister comes up to you and has to rebuke you privately. It's something to be very tenderhearted about. Um, because they, they've had to screw up their courage and, and be very vulnerable to come up and do that. They're putting their, they're putting their heart on the line to come and, talk, come and talk to you in those times. So just remember that should uh, next time it happens. And read authors who, read authors with swords and machine guns and valiant last stands. I, I love those books. I read, I read way, that's, what, that's how I misspent my youth. Read books about princesses and castles and happy, and happy endings at the end. But above all, read books where godliness is praised. And think about that. Read books that, I, and I think in the midst of all of her irony and sarcasm, I think that's what Austen, that's the legacy that Austen has left us. She has imperfect, flawed men and women grappling to live faithful in a fallen world. Any questions or observations? Anyone want to share their favorite Austen novels or scenes? I hereby forbid anyone to bring up movie adaptation or television adaptation of Austin because we do not have time for that this morning. Yeah, Bob.
course they do. <laughs> right. The right people get together. <laughs> yes, they do, as Mr. Darcy proved this morning. Right, my love? I hope I, I proposed better than that first time. So are we going to get married or what? No, it was, it was better than that. <laughs> Anything else? <laughs> well, if you remember, you were doing better than me. I have absolutely no idea what I said. I just remember she said yes, and I don't know what I said up to that point. <laughs> Praise God. That's all I can say. That would be an interesting conversation. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come and we uh, offer up to you for worship this morning, our hearts and our minds, freely and sincerely. Lord God, let our hearts, let the hearts we offer to you be examined. Let the be, let not just because, let us not just do some hasty self-examination when the Lord's Supper comes up in a few weeks. Let us be doing it all this week. Let us examine our own hearts and what we are thinking upon, what we are dwelling upon, what we are preoccupied with, because that is what we are truly worshiping. And Lord, let us also consider our conduct our actions that flow out of our hearts and how they are affecting others. Whether we are encouraging, rebuking, and pushing others close to their Savior, whether we're hurting and wounding and tearing people apart. Lord, let us, be, let us know. Let us know ourselves. And let us do it this morning by considering, uh, considering our Savior, whose name we pray. Amen.